Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 1st, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Rich Stone talks about nuclear cooperation between the U.S. and China. Will recent coordinated efforts on a reactor in Ghana lead to more? And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent stories. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. First up, we have a story on negotiating with an artificial intelligence. Why? Why? (laughs) (laughs) This is something you've actually probably done unknowingly, for example, on eBay when you enter a bid and other people have also entered bids that are supposed to. Those are computers, right? Yeah. This is a very simple form of negotiation. This is uh, not the kind of thing we're really talking about here. This is negotiating very complicated deals, maybe real estate deals, maybe swapping solar credits with your neighbor. And so the AIs would take care of this or are they already doing it? Well, they're not already doing it. But the idea is that that when we're talking about these kinds of decisions, especially when we're talking about like negotiations that could change very quickly, very complicated, um, maybe even be happening continuously, like every 15 minutes, whether that's Something as simple as eBay or something as complicated as self-driving cars that need to make decisions maybe even every second, every few seconds, this is the point where you'd want something that actually can make decisions more intelligently, hopefully, and certainly faster than you could. All right. Now, this wouldn't be an AI story if we didn't you know, have some concerns right. about what this technology could do that would be dangerous. So what might people be worried about? Well, one thing is that you know, even though we like to think that we're, we're making negotiations, we're always acting in good faith, sometimes we like to sort of color outside the lines a little bit. I mean, you can think especially not even a negotiation, but a self-driving car when we think about self-driving cars, we want everybody else to obey all the traffic laws because they're jerks if they don't. But, you know, if we've got to get somewhere pretty quickly, maybe we, you know, fudge that yellow red light a little bit, ease on through that stop sign instead of stopping all the way. And so there, first of all, there is just sort of a human element sometimes to these decision-making. But also certainly when we're talking about maybe a computer 
negotiating whether we're going to get a, a life sentence in jail or negotiate our $100,000 house purchase, we want to make sure that these robots are always acting in our best interest. Right, right. I don't particularly care for negotiating. I just bought a car and I did bring a 70-year-old to do it for me, <laughs> to do the haggling. Is that something that an AI could take care of in the future? Well, right. I mean, anything that involves a negotiation. And again, when you know, maybe the computer is going to know, can compare prices from thousands of dealers in a split second, something that you wouldn't be able to do. Clearly, it's going to be, well, ideally, it's going to be an advantage in those types of situations. It does sound like they're going to have an information advantage, but are they really going to be better than people at negotiating everything? Well, I mean, that's what we have to find out. We have to figure out if they're actually better. And if they are better, are the benefits worth the potential risks? Now we have a story on a 70 million year old mystery. What killed the dinosaurs? Okay, not (laughs) all the dinosaurs, just a really big pile of them in Madagascar. Can you describe this, quote, bone bed for us? Yeah, this is a massive grave, northwestern Madagascar, as you said, 70 million years old. The victims are long necked sauropods, fierce theropods, crocodiles, lizards, and birds the size of ravens, and there are a lot of them. Okay, so we have a pile of corpses, all fossilized into this bone bed, Um, basically a mass grave. Um, They could have died, some suspect, by volcano or a flood, or in this case, they think algae. What were the clues that led researchers to think that this might be the killer? Well, some of the fossils sport this arched back posture, which suggests neck convulsions. Now, this is something that has been tied to toxic algae, harmful algal blooms. Um, Also, there is an unusual carbonate crust that's been left behind, which is similar to those left by algae in other sediments. And when you say other sediments, I mean, is this something that's been seen in more modern times, you know, algae killing a bunch of animals all at once? Well, there are examples of dead livestock near a lake that have this similar posture that we know were killed by toxic algae. There's another example, more ancient, starting about 11 million years ago on the coast of what is now Chile. A lot of whales dying by toxic algae that periodically killed them, and the evidence is similar to what we're seeing in this case. So things seem to be lining up, although experts say we still don't have the smoking gun, which is actually finding concrete evidence of this algae at the site. And that concrete evidence would be? Well, so that would be, you know, for example, chemical traces or biomarkers of algae in the rocks and the fossils in this area. And the researchers are looking for that right now. Last up, we have another mystery, this one, mysteriously male crocodiles. Um, Sex determination in crocodiles is temperature dependent. How does that work, Dave? So these animals don't have sex chromosomes like we do. And so really a lot of it depends on the temperature of the nest. If the nest is warmer, you tend to get more females. If it's colder, you tend to get more males. Um, And there was actually been a concern that climate change is going to cause a lot more females of these species, including crocodiles. But that's not what we're seeing in Costa Rica. Right. So these researchers went out and checked the sex of 500 adult crocodiles. How does one do that, Dave? It's not easy. You got to get in the water. You got to trap these guys. You got to make sure that you don't get bitten. You got to put a blindfold over their eyes to (laughs) prevent them from being stressed. You got to strap their mouth shut. Uh, In some cases, you got to take them back to the lab and 
what you also have to do is stick your fingers into their cloacas and fish around. And if you find a structure in there, it's a male. If you don't find structure in there, it's a female. This is not easy to do. All right. And all this hard work yielded a lot more males than expected. How many did they see? Well, they saw about 3.5 males for every female. And in fact, in among the hatchlings, it was even worse. About 80% of the hatchlings um, and 60% of the adults were males. So it's a very skewed sex ratio. And this is totally unexpected considering that there already has been a kind of a big increase in temperature in Costa Rica. Right. And again, exactly because of climate change, we would expect very much the opposite ratio. And what do the researchers suspect is causing this skewing if temperature doesn't seem to be the culprit? Well, they're finding that a lot of these crocs are contaminated with a hormone known as 17-alpha-methyltestosterone, which is sometimes prescribed for men with testosterone deficiencies and older women with breast cancer. But most significantly, it is fed to fish in fish farms in this area. And it turns the females into males, not just males, but bigger, faster growing males, which if you're growing fish is something that you want. Okay. So they saw it inside the crocodiles. Were they able to show that it did influence the sex determination of them? Well, much like the last story, they don't have a smoking gun here. This is just a suspicion. But also because a lot of men and especially a lot of bodybuilders use this hormone, it could be getting into the water supply in other ways. But what about people? You know, the thought is maybe the crocodiles are eating the tilapia that escape from fish farms or, you know, they're sitting around in the water with the contaminated by this hormone. But we are eating tilapia. Well, some of us eat these fish. Are people at risk? Well, the chemical is not found in the part of fish that people typically eat, but it can still pose a danger to humans, especially pregnant women, if they're exposed. Okay. Well, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got an interesting story about how a protein that causes massive weight loss in people that have cancer might actually be harnessed by pharmaceutical companies as a powerful new weight loss drug. Also a story about tiny, tiny, tiny machines that can poke holes in cancer cells. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how China's internet sensors are hurting science there. Also a story about whether human activity has played a role in Hurricane Harvey and other storms. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week's show is brought to you in part by LegalZoom. It's the last week of National Make-A-Will Month at LegalZoom, and that means now is the time to take control of your family and assets. Preparing for your family's future is the most important thing you'll do this summer. Sure, there's a lot to think about, but that's why LegalZoom created an estate planning kit to get you going. Go to LegalZoom.com prepare to get your free kit. You'll find a ton of helpful info, plus Legal Zoom discounts, all the things you need to stop procrastinating and start preparing for your family's future. Legal Zoom designed this kit to provide the tools you need all in one place. Whether a will or a trust is right for you, you'll get special Legal Zoom discounts, plus an estate plan checklist, an ebook, and other info to help you decide. 
And you can always get advice from LegalZoom's nationwide network of independent attorneys without being billed by the hour, since LegalZoom is not a law firm. There are only a few days left in National Make-A-Will Month, so hurry to LegalZoom.com prepare right now. There's no obligation, just great resources to help you protect everything you care about. That's LegalZoom.com prepare. This week's show is brought to you by a new podcast from McAfee called Hackable. These days, we're so plugged in, basically everything we do is digital. Social media, email, banking, maybe even your job. Our identities can be found online. So how worried should we be about the threat of a possible cyber attack? Hackable explores this very question with the help of cybersecurity experts, in-depth experiments, and pop culture. The second episode, just out, recounts how two hackers were able to hack into the show's host's digital life in just five days. These, of course, are the good hackers that help people prevent cyber attacks, but they explain what they'd be able to do if they were on the wrong side of the law. It's incredibly informative, entertaining, and applicable to anyone who spends a lot of time online. And that's pretty much all of us these days. You'll definitely learn a thing or two about your own cybersecurity. Listen to Hackable, a new podcast from McAfee in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This month, August 2017, was the end of a very lengthy cooperative process between the U.S. and China to remove highly enriched uranium from a research reactor in Ghana. One of our news editors, Richard Stone, is here to tell us about how they did it, why, and what it signals for ties between the U.S. and China going forward. Welcome, Rich. Hi, Sarah. Uh, so what problem were they trying to solve here? Why remove this reactor core in Ghana and replace it with another one? Since 9-11, the United States has been really concerned about weapons-grade fissile materials and securing them. The Ghana reactor is a Chinese-made research reactor that was designed to run on highly enriched uranium. So this is essentially bomb-grade material. Mm -hmm. It's not a lot. The Chinese reactor was using only a kilogram worth of highly enriched uranium. It's not enough in its own right to make a nuclear bomb. But any highly enriched uranium that is a potential source for terrorists mm -hmm. – there is a lot of concern, and there's been an effort to try to secure these materials. And this is used in research, right? This is not even an energy – so this isn't an energy reactor. No, this is a low-power research reactor. It's mostly used to look at the isotopic composition of various materials. What did they do? They didn't just take away the fissile material. They replaced it with less dangerous stuff? What China and the United States did together was design a new reactor core that ran on low enriched uranium. So uranium that cannot be immediately used to make a nuclear bomb. It would have to be further enriched. Now, this process of redesigning the core required meticulous calculations and a, a long effort of testing whether the new low-enriched core would function just as well as the highly enriched core. China designed the reactor originally. How did the U.S. play a role along with China in making a swap? The International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna is really the body that oversees all this process. So the countries that have one of these Chinese reactors, there are five, 
they have to apply to the IAEA to get support for the conversion. After that request was made, the IAEA asked China and the United States to work together on this. I noticed that some parts of the story were first person, so you were kind of traveling the world, tracking what was going on. Where did you go when all this was happening? I had support from the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting to travel to Ghana uh, with the U.S. and Chinese research team. It's really a thrill. It was the first time for me to report from Africa. And I've been all over the world, but I never reported from Africa. (laughs) Uh, So I was quite excited about that. I was able to observe the Chinese and U.S. researchers as they removed the old core and put in the new low-enrich core and the conditions that they were working in. Ghana, for them, this was very important. It's quite interesting to go there because they've had a little science city on the outskirts of the capital, Accra, for the last half century with streets like Proton Avenue, Neutron Avenue. They've really been committed to nuclear all this time. For them, this was kind of a landmark achievement that they could be on the front line of a conversion the first time this sort of conversion has has been done. And then you also made your way to China to kind of see what was happening on that end as well. It was important to give the bigger picture of U.S. and Chinese nuclear cooperation. It's not just in Ghana. So to prepare for these conversions of the miniature neutron source reactors, the U.S. and Chinese worked together at the China Institute of Atomic Energy in Beijing to create a unique facility for testing the new course. It's called a zero-power test facility. I was told I was only the second American to enter this facility after the DOE, U.S. Department of Energy researcher, who was working on this project with the Chinese. And adjacent to the campus of the Chinese Institute of Atomic Energy is a new center for excellence in nuclear security. This is another facet of the cooperation that's developing. That was a big thrill. I got to enter a nuclear bunker where at highly restricted facilities around the world, the most sensitive materials are kept. Now, this is a training facility, but going into the facility, it's pretty creepy. There is razor wire strung to the ceiling of the bunker, and when staff are not there to ensure that there are no intruders, the razor wire is lowered to the floor to prevent intruders from accessing nuclear materials kept in the center of the bunker. Now, when I was there, the vice director of the center was jokingly saying that if I crossed a particular line, there was a yellow line just a few inches away from my foot, this razor wire would just fall, uh, fall down. from the ceiling <laughs> and come down on me. And I'm like, oh, my God, that would hurt. Yeah. And uh, he explained later he was joking. Oh, okay. But these are real physical protection measures to prevent intrusion that are tested. Wow. Well, like getting back to the collaboration aspect of this, I mean, the U.S. has collaborated with China on nuclear technology in the past, but there's kind of been a pause for a really long time. So can you talk a little bit about the history there? In the 1980s, the Chinese and the U.S. basically saw the Soviet Union as a common adversary. At that point, there were some initial contacts between the U.S. and Chinese nuclear scientists, weapons scientists. Those contacts led to a program in the mid-1990s where Chinese and U.S. nuclear weapons scientists collaborated together, both in the U.S. national labs and in China's 
nuclear weapons facility, the Chinese Academy of Engineering Physics in southwestern China. These collaborations were tentative and they came to a grinding halt in 1999 after the U.S. Congress released a report, very extensive report, accusing China of espionage in the U.S. nuclear complex. China denied the allegations and independent experts found a lot of flaws in the U.S. report. But the bottom line was that contacts between U.S. and Chinese nuclear weapon scientists ceased for years after that. Wasn't there also a case made against Wen Ho Li? He was a Taiwanese-American physicist, uh, and he was accused of spying for China or at least stealing nuclear secrets. There was a Taiwanese-American researcher, Wen Ho Li, who was accused of spying. In fact, he was indicted on 59 counts of theft of classified national defense materials. He spent nine months in solitary confinement. And during his confinement, the case against him fell apart. In the end, he pled guilty to a single count. And he sued the U.S. government and several news organizations for damages. But nonetheless, after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, the attention of the U.S. government was diverted to securing loose nukes and other nu- nuclear material around the world. And that provided a new avenue for right. the U.S. and Chinese to work together. So fast forwarding from, you know, kind of this reopening of the avenues to today, what's going to happen now? We've seen one swap. Will we see these other Chinese-derived reactors downgraded in other countries as well? China produced nine of these miniature neutron source reactors. It exported five of them. The one in Ghana has been converted. There are four others that are awaiting conversion. They are in Iran, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Syria. So a lot of interesting places with these highly enriched uranium cores uh, still in operation. As I mentioned, countries have to request the IAEA for a conversion to take place. And Nigeria has done so. And that conversion is scheduled for next spring. So one thing that you and I often talk about when you come on the podcast is North Korea. So if this is maybe a little bit of a thawing in the U.S.'s relationship with China with regards to nuclear matters, is something going to happen differently with North Korea? One of the main hurdles to discussing North Korea's nuclear program with the Chinese has been lack of a forum for a U.S. and Chinese nuclear weapons scientist to interact. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly the case when considering how to help the denuclearization process on the Korean Peninsula, or even if the North Korean government, the regime were to collapse, how to help the North Korean nuclear weapons scientists find civilian work, what to do with the nuclear infrastructure there. All these questions are basically unaddressed in the U.S.-China relationship. Certainly, the U.S. is contemplating what to do if this were to happen, and presumably the Chinese are as well. But because of the political situation and lack of context between these two very important scientific communities, the nuclear weapons researchers in the two countries, they're not talking about it right now. Right. So when you say the nuclear weapon uh, researchers aren't talking, you mean the groups involved in these reactor overhauls are separate research communities? Primarily, 
it's nuclear security and safety scientists working together from the two countries. Now, there are some interactions between U.S. and Chinese weapons researchers. This is one of the interesting facets of this relationship, the rekindling of ties between the two groups of weapons scientists. But right now, it's been on relatively benign topics that the two countries agree are a priority, but they're able to work together without any political consequence. The North Korea nuclear program has a lot of political consequence and that step has not been taken by the two countries to actually get together and plot out a strategy for dealing with the crisis if it were to occur. Okay. Thanks so much, Rich, for coming and talking to us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Rich Stone oversees science's international coverage. He writes about a U.S.-China project to secure bomb-grade reactor fuel in this week's issue of Science. One more special thanks to Hackable, a new podcast from McAfee. They want to remind us that we're all connected digitally. The show, with the help of cybersecurity experts, in-depth experiments, and, of course, pop culture, explores how safe we are from cyber criminals. Can they access your digital life through something as simple as Wi-Fi or your connected car? Listen to Hackable to find out now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, Thanks for joining us.